Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. So anyway, I thought, well, there's a, a Sunday School series coming up that I'll teach you three of the classes, and I can just examine those different texts in the Sunday School class. So technically, it's not uh, a psalm, but it's rooted in a psalm. Um, again, Psalm 110 is just one of the most fascinating psalms of the Old Testament, and it's used over 15 times, I think, in the New Testament. Uh, we looked at four of those in the Gospels. He uses it uh, four different times in trying to uh, basically uh, throw off the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all their questions. He uses Psalm 110 to sort of basically shut them up so they don't ask any more questions. And that's repeated four times in the, uh, the, the Gospels. Uh, we also saw how Peter used it in his Pentecost sermon. It was centered uh, to Peter's Pentecostal sermon. Remember what, the, what he's trying to prove in that sermon. What, what was the goal of the Pentecostal sermon? show where the spirit came from, right? They're seeing all the spiritual phenomena, people speaking in tongues, these little lights on their heads, and Peter labors there to show them that this is the spirit who's come. This is the the prophecies of old about the spirit coming to God's people, like Joel 2 is the example he uses, and um, that's what this is. Well, where does spirit come from? Well, Christ sent the Spirit. He's been given the gift of the Spirit, and he's the one who sent this. Well, where did Christ get the authority to do that? You know, controlling the Spirit of God is a pretty serious thing that not just anybody can do. Uh, Where did this authority come from? Well, he quotes Psalm 110 to show that Jesus had the authority to do this. Remember what the response to the people was that heard this. They were petrified. We crucified the one that's being spoken of in Psalm 110. And from that, they come to an understanding of who Christ is and repent and believe. Uh, We also saw how uh, Paul used it as well in his prayer to the Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 1, one of two of Paul's prayers in that book. And he shows basically how, where Christ gets the authority to defend, to uh, support, and assist the church. And it comes from Psalm 110. Now, let's just look very quickly at at Psalm 110. I'm going to read it briefly. We'll just... Two or three minutes just showing what we want to emphasize in order to bring into the New Testament. Uh, Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sent forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely in the day of power, in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter the kings in the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide area. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Now, a lot of stuff here that we're not going to re-examine. We did that in the sermon a couple weeks ago. But there's essentially two points to this uh, psalm that are important in the way it's used in the New Testament. And the first one is verse 1, where it basically uses the phrase, sit at my right hand until I make your enemy your footstool. What's happening in the psalm is there, there are three people in the psalm. There is an observer who's listening to what's happening and reporting it to us. That's the author of the psalm. And then there's the Lord. 
And then there's this third person that the Lord is giving authority to. The Lord is speaking about and speaking of the privileges he's bestowing this authority onto. And there's two things he's giving him that they're very broad errors, but they're two things. First is to sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now remember what the idea of sitting at the right hand of God meant. What does that mean? What does that imply? Again, I like to be interactive. So if you have any questions or comments when I'm asking a question, it's not rhetorical. You can actually respond. Anybody remember what it was? What does sit at the right hand of a king mean? Pardon? Honor, that's one. That's definitely true. But there's another aspect as well. Pardon? Yeah, basically, there's authority there. A great amount of authority. He is the viceroy of the king. He rules alongside the king, basically. So there's rulership here, and with that rulership is a promise of the destruction of his enemy. So the first thing that we see is he's given rulership and authority. And again, remember where the Lord is right now. Where is this coming out of? Of heaven. So if he's been given a right hand of the throne of heaven, that means he has authority over everything, basically. There's no realm or no little hidden enclave where this king does not rule. And this, this man at the right hand also has that same rule. So that's the first thing. What's the second thing that we looked at as well? The second promise or privilege given to this man. That he'll be a priest, right? Now, what's unique about that? The kings of Israel were not priests. They had a separate uh, order of priests, and they had a separate order of kings. And those two were not not mixed. They were, very, they were separate. You had Aaronic priesthood and the Davidic uh, kingdom. And he's saying here that, no, you are going to be a priest as well. Not after the order of Aaron, which was a temporary priesthood, but you're going to be an eternal priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, we spent a lot of time looking at who Melchizedek was. Uh, he was basically a king that was not in the line of Aaron, and he was a priest and a king of early Jerusalem in the days of Abraham. Remember, he was the king of Salem. And remember what, what Salem is. It's the early pre-Davidic Jerusalem. So you're going to be like this king, and your priesthood is going to have no end whatsoever. So there's rulership, and there is a priesthood. Now, when we look at the way it's been used so far, uh, Peter has used it, this aspect of it. Paul has used it as well in Ephesians 1. And Paul's going to use this again in 1 Corinthians 15. He's going to appeal to this aspect of this privilege. And next week, we're going to look at Hebrews 7, where the writer of Hebrews shows the implications of his priesthood. So that both, most of the uses are centered around this, but Peter is going to use this aspect of uh, this king's authority that he is a priest. Yes, sir? We didn't look at that. I don't think it is a Christophany. I think he's a, that's certainly a, a worthy view. It wouldn't, yeah, but I, I see him as a historical figure. He's tied to a certain place, uh, a certain time. Um, the writer of Hebrews kind of fuzzies that up by saying that he's got no genealogy. 
And that's where we get that idea from. We have to kind of read Hebrews back into the historical account for that. But yeah, we didn't teach that. Uh, again, a lot of people hold that, and I believe it's a valid view. Doesn't really affect anything uh, other than maybe the historical account of it. But I think both of those can exist. But yeah, we did not uh, look at that or treat it as a Christophany. But good, good question, good point, or good point. Um, so again, this idea of the priesthood will be looked at next week in Hebrews 7. But right now we're going to look at Psalm, or not Psalm, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, how it is used there. And uh, again, 1 Corinthians 15 is probably one of the most important chapters in the New Testament. There was, uh, I remember when I used to read uh, Lewis Berry Schaefer, he would always say that you can tell a, a Greek scholar by if you open up his, body, his Greek text, it automatically falls open on Romans 5. And he was saying there the importance of Romans 5 in understanding the New Testament. Well, mine falls open on 1 Corinthians 15. It is the one of the most important chapters in the New Testament. That explains the resurrection in ways and in depths that, that no other book does, no other section of Scripture actually does. So it's a very important chapter, and we'll see how Paul uses Psalm 110 to bring out the meaning of the resurrection. Carl uh, Barth has said this, Faith in the resurrection power of God, according to Paul, is the alternative to idolatry. It assigns to the Creator, God, the power and glory that are properly His, the very things that idolatry characteristically denies, and by denying courts death. Now, I, don't, I don't recommend people read Barth except for one book. He wrote a book on uh, the resurrection where it's basically a, um, a commentary on 1 Corinthians 15. And it's one of the best things ever written on the resurrection. Don't read anything else by him. If you want to read something, read that. It actually changed New Testament scholarship. People used to think that uh, 1 Corinthians 15 was just a normal chapter in 1 Corinthians. And Bart showed very clearly that, no, it, it is the center of the book of 1 Corinthians, that, that you need to focus on it to understand the rest of the book. And most scholars now that study 1 Corinthians uh, agree with that. It is the center of the book. And uh, so a very, very small little book just on the basic commentary on uh, Romans chapter 15. Um, again, the wisdom of God is revealed in the cross. The power of God is revealed in the resurrection. Um, a couple other books, if you want to read on resurrection, one, again, the only book I'd recommend by N.T. Wright as well, is his book, Resurrection of the Son of God. It's a, a, almost a thousand pages, but it is the best book ever written on the resurrection, the most detailed. In fact, when I finished reading, I actually uh, wrote to uh, N.T. Wright an email thanking him for the book. He actually responded back and forth for a, a few days. It's, it's just an amazing, amazing book. So those are two really good books if you want to get deep into the resurrection, just beyond the empty grave type, which most books are. Which one? It's a Resurrection of the Sons of God, of the Son of God, yeah. Okay, so we're going to focus on verses 28, 20 through 28 today. So let's go ahead and flip back to our, over to 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll read from chat, verse 1 to the area that we're going to focus on, and that is verses 20 through 28. And we'll just give a, a quick running commentary on what's happened up till that point, and then look a little bit closer at what um, Paul is trying to say in verses 20 through 28. All right. Uh, keep in mind, Paul is writing to to correct a lot of errors that the First Corinthians or the Corinthians have uh, embraced, and one of them, probably the worst one, is a faulty view of the resurrection. 
Paul is set out to to correct that view in this passage. Probably one of the longest chapters of the New Testament as well. So he deals with it very thoroughly. Um, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you, as as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though I was not. Though, though it was not, I was but by the grace of God that is within not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Whether then it is I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ is raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile or in vain, and you still are in your sins. Those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If Christ, if in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we are of all people most pitied. This is the section we're going to try to get to today. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as though by one man came death, by the man comes also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own, but each comes to the end, I'm sorry, but each comes in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that plain that he has accept, accepted who put, I'm sorry, he has accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who puts all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Try reading that out loud. It's very difficult to read. So, not that I'm illiterate, it's very hard to read. Okay, so a lot, lot of ground to cover here. Well, let's start with, with the first section. The first section of uh, verses 1 through 11, Paul is basically uh, giving the ground for the resurrection. And the grounds he gives here are historical. So you know the resurrection happened. Why? Well, because we know people who saw him rise from the dead. He appeared to Peter. Uh, he appeared to the Twelve. He appeared to 5,000 people. Uh, many of those people are still alive. Then he went and appeared to James. Then he went and appeared to the apostles again. Then finally he appeared to me, the least of the apostles. So he's telling them, look, you know Christ rose from the dead. Why? 
Because people saw, people that you know, people you may be sitting next to in church, actually saw him rise from the dead. So therefore, you know that he rose from the dead. Very simple argument. Not one that we can make today, uh, because there aren't people who are alive who saw him rise from the dead. But it's one that Paul could appeal to. That, look, you know he rose from the dead because you know people who saw him. Some of you may have actually even seen him rise from the dead, but it's a historical fact based on many, many witnesses, many of them still alive. So that's basically the grounds for his argument for the resurrection, that he arose from the dead because people saw him. And then in verses 12 through 19, he sort of, he looks at it theologically. He asks the question, or not asks it, but sort of answers this question, what would it be like if there were no resurrection from the dead? Let's assume, just for the sake of argument, there's no resurrection from the dead. What would that mean for us? Let's assume it's all along. What would it mean for our theology? What would it mean for our very salvation if Christ did not arise from the dead? Look, look, you go around preaching that Christ had been raised from the dead. You know people preach that. Uh, you've heard it preached, and you probably preach it yourself. Um, it's done by people that actually saw him rise from the dead. Uh, what if this is all just a lie? What if it's not true? And so he draws out the implications. Um and he seems to be stepping backward here with, with these negative arguments. He first of all, uh, let's assume that there's no general resurrection from the dead. I know what a general resurrection from the dead is, right? No, that means when we f- refer to the general resurrection of the dead, there's, there's two resurrections basically. There's the resurrection of Christ, and then there's what's called the general resurrection. Now, what the general resurrection is, it's basically when everybody else is raised from the dead. Uh, that's called the general resurrection. It's often referred to as the resurrection of the dead. And the general resurrection, there's going to be two parts to that, two groups in that. What are the two groups? Anybody know? Right, those who are in Christ and those who are not. And the resurrection of those who are not in Christ is related to the resurrection of Christ himself. They have bodies. They're not raised as in disembodied spirits. They have bodies, and that is related to the resurrection of Christ as well. One are raised to life. Others are raised to death and judgment. So Paul is saying, let's assume that there's no resurrection from the dead. Uh, if that's true, how can we claim that Christ has been raised from the dead? At verse 12, now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? Now, this resurrection here is the general resurrection. How can you say that there's never going to be a resurrection? But if there's no res- resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. In other words, if this is not true, if there's doubt about this, if God is unwilling or unable to raise the dead, then how do we know that Christ has been raised from the dead? These two are related in Paul's mind. So if you deny this, you also have to deny this. So the first argument he makes, the first implication he makes, is that, look, if this doesn't happen, then this doesn't happen right here. Now he goes to let's see what happens if this doesn't happen. What is the ground of your faith? What what happens to your faith if Christ has not been raised from the dead? Now, the first implication is that your faith is in vain. If Christ was not raised from the dead, then your faith, it's nothing. It's empty. It it has no purpose, no meaning whatsoever. And if Christ is not raised from the dead, he says it very explicitly here, your faith is in vain. It's useless. If you believe a gospel that has as its center point the fact that Christ was raised from the dead, and this tells us about Paul's gospel, what was a major element of his gospel? That Christ rose from 
the dead. They had that in their mind that this gospel, when it comes to us, a major element of that gospel is that God raised Jesus from the dead. He said, if you deny that, then in a sense you're denying the gospel and your faith is actually in vain. Uh, it would be similar to a person uh, at, after years of believing, supposedly believing the gospel. What if you had a friend who said, you know, I I will say 25 years ago I heard you know this great evangelist preach uh, the cross and the resurrection and I, I believed it and I, I was changed uh, there was a, a deep, profound difference in my life, but I just don't believe the cross anymore. I don't believe it's necessary. I don't believe it's possible. How could that person still be consistent in his faith if he denied the cross? We all understand that, right? You cannot deny the cross and still call yourself a Christian. Well, Paul is making the same point about the resurrection. You cannot deny the resurrection without your faith in the gospel falling to shambles, just as if you denied the cross. Now, keep in mind the significance of this argument. This is the argument that Paul often makes. We often like to put all of our emphasis on objective arguments, where Paul is making a very subjective argument here. Um, and he does this all the time, where he looks at the subjective experiences Christians had when they were saved and uses that to validate certain truths. For example, uh, when he's arguing with Peter in Galatians about justification by faith. He asked Peter, you know, how do, how do you know that you were saved? How do you know that your salvation came not from the works of the law, but from works of grace, from, from faith alone? Was it because you received a forensic justification that you know? No, he says, no. How did you receive the Spirit, Peter? Remember that subjective experience you had where the Spirit came upon you and you began to speak in tongues and you got up and gave that, that fantastic sermon that 5,000 people were saved? Remember all that that happened, that, that experience? How did that come? Did it come by works of the law or did it come by faith? And the answer is, well, it came by faith, by his faith, not by works of law. So there's a subjective experience that Peter has that Paul validates and says, where did you get it from? Faith. Okay, then your whole salvation then is a faith. Uh, Paul makes a, another interesting uses this argument in another interesting way in Second Corinthians, um, where there's a group of what he calls super apostles that have invaded the Corinthian church, and they're all these great. Uh, men with all, they, they have resumes, they have letters of recommendation, uh, and he actually calls them super apostles. And they've come and have infiltrated the church, and the Corinthians are very impressed by these men. You know, they, they're flowery, they have recommendations, they spoke at this conference, you know, this great church recommends them, they've got a letter saying, yeah, you know, anything this guy says is fine, so they've got the, these credentials that they come with. And they're looking at Paul, you know, this little weak guy, sick guy, I say, you know, Paul, where's your letter of recommendation? Where's your resume? You know, what do you've got to show yourself to us that you're, you're legitimate as an apostle? And his argument is brilliant. He says, look, here's my letter of recommendation. And you can read this in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 3. He says, look, you are my letter of recommendation. And it's written not with ink, not on paper or tablets of stone. It's written by the Spirit, and it's written on your hearts. Now, what is Paul doing there? 
He's taken the subjective experience that the Corinthians had when they received the gospel. I mean, the Corinthians knew that something changed in them when they received the gospel. They knew that they were different, as, as he spells out in 1 Corinthians 16, after that list of all the things that they did, that people that don't inherit the kingdom of God, or the homosexuality, uh, the brawlers, the drunkards, all those people don't inherit the kingdom of God. He says, and such were some of you. So these people knew that they'd experienced this great change that came from God. And Paul says, look, if you deny my ministry, then you deny your very salvation. Your existence as a church is called into question if you deny my ministry. So my letter, look at yourself, look at your life, look at the change, look at what God did to you. That's my letter of recommendation. And I can imagine that that humbled the Corinthians very greatly to, uh, to realize that. Yeah, his ministry to us is greater than anything a man could bring on paper because it, it turned us into who we are. It made us who we are today. So this idea of, of a subjective experience um, is very common in Paul, and he's using it here. That Look, if you deny the gospel, then every change that's happened to you, everything that God has done for you, uh, that great change that he brought about in turning you from idols to the living God, all of that is in vain. All the hope that you have is basically thrown away. And just listen to this. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexual, immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And what Paul is saying here is if you deny not my ministry, but if you deny the resurrection of Christ, then all of this is for nothing. It's empty. It's meaningless. Again, the Corinthians knew the gospel had done something to them. They knew that through its power, they had passed from death to life, from darkness to light, from slavery to freedom, from condemnation to justification. And they knew, Paul's telling them, if you deny the resurrection, then all of that is basically gone. Now, the second implication uh, is if you deny the resurrection, you make those who preach it, myself included, to be liars. We're bearing false witness. We go around preaching the gospel, and an element of that gospel, one of the main elements, is that Christ was raised from the dead. Then who are we? We're basically liars. So anybody who comes preaching to you a gospel that contains a resurrection is a liar. And he's trying to get them to admit, if that's the case, then this is the implication that those who preach it are liars. So not only is your faith invalid, but those who preach it are basically charlatans. They are liars preaching a false gospel. He says this, Even we are found to misrepresent God because we testify about God that he raised Christ, who he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. And he doesn't say that Christ is raised, but the dead are not raised. So if the dead are not raised, by implication, Christ is not raised. Third implication is that if you deny the resurrection, uh, you're still in your sins and you're still without hope. Any hope that you have, any forgiveness of sin that you take comfort in is basically done away with. For, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If, if 
If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope, actually I quote the dead in there twice, but you get the idea of what he's saying here. Look, if, if you deny the resurrection, then you're still in your sins. Your sins are still on your back. You are still guilty before God. And not only that, but those who have perished, we take great comfort knowing that those who have gone before us in the Lord are with the Lord right now, that we will see them one day. And he said, even that hope is gone, is removed. So we're to be pitied. We're pathetic people if we deny the resurrection because we have no hope. We have no hope whatsoever. If our hope is in this life at all, then what are we? The gospel gives hope for a life to come outside of this life. And if that is taken away, then we are a people to be pitied. So the resurrection is not just an act that God has done for us. Um, it goes far deeper than that. It, it has ended an age and begun another age. When we divide history up, important historical events, what we often call those times? Ages, right? You know, read uh, Will Durant's books, uh, The Age of Enlightenment, The Age of Reason. He's got all these books divided up into different ages. And we think that way. When there's major changes that take place historically, we call it a new age. And there are certain features of that age that mark it out from the previous age. That's how we divide history. Well, in, in biblical eschatology, there's two ages. There's the current age, and there is the age to come. The current age is the age of death. It's an age of uh, destruction. There's no hope for this age. Those who are locked into this age will perish when that age perishes. But there's a future age, an age to come, that there's going to be light. There's going to be glory. There, there's going to be peace. There's going to be hope in that age. And what's happened now is that that new age has, in a sense, entered this age. So there's an overlap where we can still be of that new age, but living in this age right now. And that's part of Paul's eschatology, is what's called realized eschatology, where, yes, we know something's going to happen in the future, but that's already begun now. The process has started so that there is a new age begun in this age. And what Paul is saying here is if there's no resurrection, then that new age is not begun. It's not happened yet. And you are still living under the powers of that old age. Uh, this, again, this is from Bart's book. Again, I know people get upset when I mention Bart, but this is the only book I'd recommend you reading of his. Let me say that again, just this book. Uh, the crucial point is not just that they are believing rubbish about the resurrection and about Jesus, but the new age in which sins are left behind has not, after all, been inaugurated. For Paul, the point of the resurrection is not simply that the creator God has done something remarkable for one solitary individual, that that's for Christ, but that in and through the resurrection, the present evil age has been invaded by the age to come, the time of restoration, return, covenantal renewal, and forgiveness. An event has occurred as a result of which the world is a different place, and human beings have new possibilities to become a different kind of people. And this is what the Corinthians have become, a different kind of people, people that are forgiven, uh, people that have hope. And Paul's saying here is if you reject the resurrection, then you're not that kind of people. You're basically dead in your sin. So this new age has not begun. You're still left in the old age. And by denying the resurrection, you're denying this new age has come. You're leaving people in the present evil age and without hope. 
So in these few verses, Paul's made a very strong case for the necessity of the resurrection. It's necessary because your faith is in vain if you don't accept it. It's necessary because it makes us who preach the gospel liars. And it's necessary because it is brought in this new age that without which we have no hope or, or basically we're, we're, we're done. We're part of the old age, which will be destroyed. So any questions or comments before we move on? Understand all of it, or we understand not. Yeah, yes. I don't. I, I don't know. Um, I couldn't tell you that. I mean, the problem is that there's some who we would consider them evangelical denominations. There may be churches within those that that denied as well. So you can't just make borders between denominations as to what. Whether the resurrection is believed or not, there's some. I'm sure there are you know, some within the PCUSA, which is more of a liberal Presbyterian church, that believe it, and some who don't. I've heard uh, PCUSA preachers give great sermons on the resurrection. I've heard some who deny it and read their books. So yeah, I, I don't know. Hopefully, it's a lot. And again, a lot of it too is not necessarily the. There's a lot of conservative denominations that will believe the resurrection. But I think there's very few that really understand its significance. That, that, that's what worries me, is that they really see what the resurrection is. Most, the most people, most churches, most denominations, it's just an empty tomb. And that's it. Where uh, very seldom did it get into the theological implications of what it actually means. And that's you know, digging into 1 Corinthians 15 and other passages as well, but what it actually means to be resurrected. And why, you know, we'll admit, yeah, it is central to the gospel. But why? I mean, why is it central to the gospel? What has it done? to make itself central to the gospel. What are its implications? And we could talk, you know, all a month of Sundays about the, the cross being centered, but very few people can give an explanation of why the resurrection is centered, other than what the scripture says. And that's fine, but, you know, Paul's getting into some very deep stuff here that he expects these people to understand. He expects to use to sway them to embrace the resurrection again. And we're just we're just touching the peaks. There, there's stuff here that is really uh, deep and, and complex and theologically profound. So, yeah, the apostles expected us to go this way. And most of the church, I don't, I'm not saying this church, but most of the church in general, those that hold to the bodily resurrection, uh, don't really know that. Any other questions? Good question. Yes, Bert. Right. 
That's when it took away. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we all we all think of just the cross as being foolishness, but the whole message of the gospel, including the resurrection, is also foolish. And the Jews, they believed in resurrection. It's one thing that N.T. Wright does brilliantly shows that the Jews had a, a deep, profound belief in resurrection. They just didn't like the fact that Christ rose from the dead. Somebody was going to rise from the dead. It just wasn't this guy. Was their argument where the, the idea of the Romans and the Greeks is people don't rise from the dead. Doesn't happen. And again, Mars Hill, but they were interested in Paul. They, they brought him up. Let's hear more about this. You know, we want to hear what you have to say. And as soon as he got to the resurrection, they they were done. Okay, that's it. No more. So yeah, resurrection was uh, anathema to the intellectual minds of the Greeks and Romans. And again, we know Paul doesn't care about that. He's looking at the theological implications. And if you have to embrace the foolishness of the world, we embrace the gospel. Well, that's how we started this whole epistle off, that we, we believe foolishness because it's the power of God and his salvation. So, anything else? We're kind of running a little more time. We stop at 10 up, right? Okay, so we may have to bring some of this into next week. Okay, so, um, let's see. Okay, uh, 28 through 20. 20 through 20. Here's where we get to the uh, where Paul actually pulls in the idea of 1 Corinthians. Where he pulls in the uh, the meaning of Psalm 110. I'll just get go ahead and read it real quick. Try to try to finish up. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So see what I, it has happened. Uh, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by one man came death, by a man also has come the resurrection of the dead. Here, what he's saying here is, okay, now let's switch gears. Let's assume the resurrection has happened. Okay, what are the effects? So first, first of all, uh, he calls the resurrection uh, the first fruits from the death. Now, the idea of first fruits here, very uh, quickly, is the idea of a, uh, a harvest. The first fruits of a harvest are those which indicate a sign of a greater harvest. You pick the first fruits, and that's a reminder that this is just the beginning. There's going to be more. So what he's saying here is that the resurrection of Christ is a reminder, is a guarantee of this general resurrection going to happen. So this right here basically is a demonstration of this right here. So we have hope in Christ's resurrection that this will happen right here. And then he shows, it's very similar to what Paul does in Romans 15, that well, how can this be? How can one man's resurrection uh, lead to a whole category of other men's resurrections. I mean, the whole world, this category here. How can that be? And what does he use here as an example? Adam. We know that one man fell, right? And what happened when that man fell? Well, everybody fell. So he's talking about here what we call the solidarity of the human race, that the human race can have a head and be related to that head in such a way that what happens to the head affects all of those that are connected to that head. So those who are in Adam, they are basically dead. They died when Adam died. Now that we've been united to Christ, we've done, been done, it's been done in such a way that because Christ is raised from the dead, we're in such a solidarity with him that we will be raised from the dead as well. That's why it's so important. That's why the church fought for centuries over the humanity of Christ, because that humanity means that there is a solidarity between Christ and his people in such that what happens to him can be transferred and given to us. 
So Paul argues that here. Look, we know this can happen because in Adam all die, but also all in Christ shall be made alive. There's a new humanity that has been put in Christ. When he is raised from the dead, they will be raised from the dead as well. Then he gives the order, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So Christ died, he rose again. That's the first fruits. This second group, the harvest, will come when? When Christ returns to the earth. Then that resurrection will occur, and all men, all men will be raised from the dead. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy will be death. Now that, that phrase here, that um, after he has destroyed every rule, authority, and every power. Uh, what does that sound like? Sounds like Psalm 110, right? What is Christ going to do? What is this king going to do? He's going to destroy the nations. He's going to fill them with dead bodies. He's going to scatter kings in the day of his wrath. There's going to be a, a destruction uh, to his enemies that he brings that's going to be complete and thorough. Well, that's what Paul's saying right here, that he's going to destroy every authority, every rule, every power uh, is going to be destroyed by him. So this, uh, this is a hint of what's happening, what Paul is referring to. He's going back to First uh, Romans, uh, not Romans, uh, Psalm 110, and pulling that idea into this passage here. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Again, verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That's a direct quote now from Psalm 110. Now Paul summarizes the, uh, the rulership here, the sitting at the right hand of God, by saying that he must rule until his enemies are put under his feet. But now notice one of the enemy that's added here. now In Psalm 110, who are the enemies? Just the nations, the kings, the rulers, those who are rebelling against God. But here the enemy is what? Is death. This is the last enemy that Christ will destroy. And once that, once that is done, then there will be a restoration. Then Christ will hand over the kingdom to God, and all will be all in all. And notice as well, he pulls in Psalm 8 here. Uh, you look around, you don't see everything subject to God. You don't see everything subject to man. Uh, the world is against men in many ways. Uh, he doesn't have control. Once this transaction takes place, once this last enemy is destroyed, then the peace will come. Then this subjection will come under Christ himself. So Paul he pulls the authority from Psalm 110 into this passage and shows the end, ultimate goal of the resurrection is to destroy God's enemies. Those enemies, the primary enemy that will be destroyed, the very last one. Remember in the famous battles where uh, you know they go up and they they grab the final, the king or the most uh, vicious warrior, and, and they slay his head, they cut his head off, and by that you know the war is over, that the battle is won. Well, that's what's happening here. This last enemy has bowed its head to the sword, and Christ will remove its head, and everything will be over. Now, where does that authority come from? It comes from right here. Psalm 110. That's what Paul pulls in here to show that Christ has the authority to destroy the enemies. That power was given to him at the resurrection, and he will execute it when the end of time comes. So again, a brilliant use of this passage here to give hope to the resurrection. We have no hope unless death is destroyed. If death continues, we're, what's the use of anything? What's the use of the gospel if there's no that, that fear of death remains? Well, 
death is done away with by Christ. And again, he uses Psalm 110 to show us that authority has been given to him when the Father sat him at the right hand and promised him to destroy his enemies and give him the kingdom. And here's a twister will be done after this, that Christ then does what with the kingdom? <clears throat> Gives it back to the Father. So this idea of Christ reigning, it almost seems temporary. It's done for a while, and he does the work he's been given to do, and then now gives the kingdom back to the Father, and we enter eternity with everything now restored in perfect harmony between God, man, and even between the members of the Trinity themselves. Where now the Father has everything under his control because Christ has given that to him. So again, wonderful passage. I wish we could spend a month of Sundays in 1 Corinthians 15. It's beautiful the way it describes the resurrection. And again, it is the basis for our hope. So I hope that you, you will think about this. You will read 1 Corinthians 15, scratch your head, maybe get Barth's book, maybe get uh, N.T. Wright's book, and, and just dig in and, and try to get as much out of the resurrection as you can. It's a wonderful, wonderful teaching. And I trust you've been encouraged and helped by this. Next week we will look at uh, the priesthood, how Hebrews 7 uses the idea of priesthood uh, to make his points, encourage the brethren at uh, the right of Hebrew. So sorry for keeping you over time, uh, but uh, we'll just go to go. Thanks for your attention. Thank you.